spring is coming. Um, so before we uh, get into things, uh, just at Crossroads, uh, we loved what happened this last week uh, because relationship is, is just as simple as walking and talking uh, with someone. That, that's what defines even my relationship with my wife, uh, is that we walk and we talk. And that re- d- defines our relationship with God. We, we, we walk and we talk. Um, we talk to God through prayer, and God talks to us uh, through his word. In fact, uh, in, in the scriptures, his word and spirit are, are almost synonymous. Uh, to the Jewish people to this day, this book is more than a book. It's the Holy of Holies. It's where God lives. It's where, where God dwells. And Jesus has placed himself in this book. Um, it's one of the reasons why we love our middle name at Crossroads, Crossroads Bible Church, uh, for all these reasons. And another thing that we're really passionate about at this church is that we won't have this special class of people called pastors that know the Bible. We want to be, all of us are pastors. All of us who are just uh, drinking uh, this living water, eating this manna, and understanding it and applying it to our lives. And so that's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. It's why we do podcasts. It's also why we're now starting to also incorporate electives that are right around uh, this, this initiative. So Treg, who's now really in charge of the electives of our church in terms of coordinating them and planning them around uh, this value. Treg, I'm just going to have you speak to this elective coming up. Yeah, well, first let me just say that the whole goal of electives is not just to get more into our brains about God, but to really grow as a disciple of Jesus. And so this is actually an elective that we're really excited about. We got a couple coming up and then a few this spring. This one's called Intro to the Bible. If you've been here before, you've probably uh, heard or been to an elective with Matt Bell, who's a part of our congregation here. He's a Bible teacher at North Point Christian, just phenomenal. And this course is really designed for Uh, People that maybe have never really approached the Bible, they have big questions about the Bible, and then those looking for an opportunity to be able to defend why they believe what they believe about the Bible. And so we're really excited about that. And then the 24th of March, we actually have a Passion Week elective uh, for more of you history and archaeological uh, buffs um, led by Brad Bankston, and we're super excited about that, called the Chronology of Christ. Um, and then we'll, we'll just have more. So if you're ever wondering about where electives are, you can go right on our website. This one's on our banner. But otherwise, uh, it's under events, and you can just type in elective, and you can see all of the elective offerings coming up. But like I said, this is not about this. This is about this. And uh, yeah. Drake, thanks for all that you're doing, both the podcast and now the electives. We appreciate it. So, okay, let's dive into God's word. We're making our journey through Genesis, and we've made it to chapter 18. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I believe it's found on page 10 in your Bibles, maybe 12, if you have a blue Bible. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And trust me, it can get very hot in that part of the world. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran. That's literally how the text reads. He ran uh, from the entrance of his tent to meet them and he bowed low to the ground. And then he said to them, if I have found favor in your eyes, 
my lords, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought to you, and then may I wash your feet. And may you rest under this tree and let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham ran back to the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it into some, into some bread. And then he ran to the herd and he selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it, prepare it. And then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and he set these before them. And while they ate, Abram stood near under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he asked. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, I am worn out and my Lord, my husband is old. Will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And why did she say, well, I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. She lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did. You can be seated. <laughs> okay, let's start with this question. What's Abraham uh, doing sitting in his tent in the heat of the day? Well, one of the things that we don't really think about is the time that passes between chapters. So... First, you need to know that chapters and verse numbers were all added uh, hundreds upon hundreds of years after we actually had the text of Scripture itself. So they were not part of the original text. And between chapters 16 and 17, 14 years pass, and between 17 and our text today, just days. In fact, Hebrew scholars make it three days pass between chapter 17 and 18. And then when you consider how did chapter 17 end, like what happened to Abraham, uh, he was circumcised, which is probably why he is now sitting in his tent, all right? So you have to have all that as context. Um, now, verse 1 begins with, and the Lord appeared to him. This is the third time where it says this. Meaning, Abraham not only hears God with his ears, but he sees God with his eyes. So then you ask, what does Abraham see? Well, now we have a story that, that, that tells us what Abraham sees. Verse 2 says that Abraham looks up and he sees three men coming to him. In fact, I, I want us to see right now that this Verse 2 gives us no reason to believe there's anything unusual about these three men coming to Abraham. They're just ordinary men. They're three strangers. So if we didn't have verse 1, 
That's what these three men would be to us. They would just be three strangers, three men making their way to Abraham. But we have verse one, which means we know something about these three men that Abraham doesn't know, which is why we have Hebrews 13, which does commentary on this, where it says practice hospitality, where some have entertained uh, angels not even knowing about it. And that's who Abraham is entertaining. In fact, not even just angels, but one of, one of these strangers is the Lord. It's the second person of the Trinity. It's Christ. And why am I taking so much time to just show how, how Abraham is oblivious to who these three men are? Because I think what the text wants us to see is how Abraham and Sarah treat these three strangers, because that's what they are to them. And here's Abram, sitting in his tent. He's just been circumcised. He's 100 years old. It's the heat of the day. And if I'm him, and I see these strangers, I just close the, 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 the tent, and I just hide. <laughs> Not Abraham. Verse 2 literally reads, when he saw them, he ran. He ran to them. This old 100-year-old man runs to these strangers. Can you picture it? We need to picture it. Because I've spent a lot of time in the Middle Eastern culture, old men do not run. And here's why. It has nothing to do in that world because they're too lazy to run. It's... It, 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 in that culture, it's too undignified to pull up your, your robe, to bare your legs, and to run. It's, it's just dishonoring to, to an elderly man. It's shameful for them to do this. In fact, this is why there are only two times in Scripture where we read of two old men running. Abraham is the first in our text today and the other is the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Only two places where an old man runs. And here's Abraham. He's bringing dishonor to himself, and he's doing it to welcome these three strangers. The text says when he gets to them, he bows. He washes their feet. Verse 6, he then runs back to the tent. Sarah, come on, let's get going. We have visitors Verse 7, then he runs to the flocks and the herds. I mean, the guy's running all over the place. He gets his best cut of meat, the cut, you know, that we have maybe in our freezers for that extra special occasion. He tells Sarah, he says, get three sias of the finest flour. I'll tell you what a sia is. A sia is 20 pounds. Three sias is 60 pounds of flour. This is flour enough to make bread for more than 100 people. What you need to see here is that Abraham and Sarah are not just preparing food. They are literally preparing a feast. They are treating these strangers like kings. And then in verse 7, where he speaks to his servant, I don't know why the NIV does this. Um, servant here literally reads, young lad. <laughs> so the young lad is Ishmael. And Ishmael is now uh, 14 years old. And I love this because the whole family 
when a stranger comes, they know what to do. All hands on deck, everybody working with joy, tenacity. This would have taken hours to prepare this food. And I love verse eight because it says there's Abraham sitting under that tree. I see him under that tree as the happiest man in the world just watching these strangers enjoying the work of hands. Now, why is this in our Bible? Well, it's not coincidence that this story and the parable of the prodigal are the only two places where we see an old man running. In fact, I can promise you that Jesus' audience, when they heard Jesus telling the, the, the parable of the prodigal and the father on the porch waiting, and then when the father finally sees his lost son off in the distance. And then when Jesus says that father got off his porch and he ran with all his might to his son, in their minds, you know who they're picturing? Oh, this is Abraham. Because only Abraham in their text is anyone who's ever done this. And here's the deal. While the running part for an old man is crazy, what actually the father in, in the story of the prodigal and what Abraham are doing in our story today, it's actually biblical what they're doing. Because this is what fathers do. As the heads of household, it is their responsibility to redeem. Anything that is lost, anything that is marginalized, whether it's a son or any time a head of a household sees that there's someone who doesn't have a household. It's their responsibility to restore that person to home. And I don't care how much it costs them. And see, in the ancient uh, world, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, this is what they all have in common. They are all, of the, they are all people who are outside the father's house. They all lack it, which is why so many of God's laws, his instructions, things that we say, the law that we're free of. No, a lot of those instructions are God's instructions to his people. This is how you are to treat the stranger, the widow, and the fatherless. And think about this. Here you have Abraham. His name means great father. And he reflects the father and the prodigal. And look at him. When he sees the stranger, he runs to them to bring them home, just like the father and the prodigal. I want us to see these two old men, these two fathers, lifting their robes, bearing their legs, dishonoring themselves, bringing shame to themselves, but just running. One's running to strangers, and one's running to his lost son. And what both of these fathers do next is what? They kill the fatted calf, both of them, and they feast. Now, I can promise you that as Jesus is telling this parable of the prodigal, uh, the, the audience is imagining Abraham, but Jesus is telling this parable to say, this father on the porch who runs is God. And what I love about this is that in their minds, they're so confused between God and Abraham because Abraham is now becoming like his father in heaven. He's learning how to walk like him and be like him in the world. 
And if you want to know right now what our mission should look like as a church, I don't think we have to look any further than this story right here. This old man running, this old woman baking bread for a few strangers. Because just imagine for a second, imagine if Christians in Grand Rapids or Christians all across our nation or Christians all across our world, what if this is what we are known for? What if this was our reputation? Oh, maybe some of you right now are thinking, you know what, Rod, you're, you're making way too much of this. Well, let me ask you, do you know what it's like to be a stranger in a strange place? Do you know even what it's like to be a minority where, where, where you're the one who looks strange and you're the one that, that has a strange accent, you're the one that looks out of place? Because unless you've been in this situation for a season of time, you cannot appreciate what Abraham and Sarah just did. It made me reflect this week on my first time when I went to Israel, Palestine. Uh, that, that place can be a bit unnerving. You see and hear Israeli fighters all, all the time zooming across your head. You see soldiers walking around with, with machine guns. You, you feel the tensions between East and West, between Jew, Christian, and Muslim. And I remember on our first trip, I wasn't leading it. It was my first time there. It was about the fourth day. I was, I was just still feeling all of this tension here. And we were right in the place where the Abraham story takes place, so much of it. And we were hiking towards what looked like a Bedouin village. And as we're hiking to it, all of a sudden, these children come running out. Again, the, the men, old man will never run. They come running out. Uh, they welcome us. They greet us. They're like, motioning us to come to, 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 to their village. They lead us to their home. They take us uh, into their household. And there, uh, all, all the women prepared tea and bread for all 40 of us. <sighs> Stunning. And I even thought about it. It confronted all the stereotypes that I had in my mind. And they were just showering us with, 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 with all of this, this love. And that's why I listened to another parable from the lips of Jesus. It's probably the shortest parable he ever told. And every time I've read it up until I came to Genesis 18, I'm like, why is this parable here? But Matthew 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman worked into three seas of flour. Now, your NIV doesn't say it that way. It's taught, it says the kingdom of heaven is like that of a woman who works 60 pounds of flour into the bread. <laughs> you hear what Jesus is saying? He knows his audience knows this story. He's talking about Sarah, Sarah preparing this feast. And Jesus is saying, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven looks like? The kingdom of heaven is a feast. It's a banquet that's offered to strangers. And I think one of the biggest questions that's facing the church today are we going to be a people that just gather in chairs on Sunday mornings? Or are we going to be a people like Abraham who run? Who run to the stranger, who run to the marginalized, who run to the lost, to the poor, to the prisoner, to the refugee? Will we open our homes? Will we share our flocks and herds? Will we offer our finest? And I really believe that we as a church need to continue to recapture 
just the power of the home and the power of the meal because the home and the meal to me are the most potent vehicles of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. I think Genesis 18 is actually here for a reason with with all of its detail because next week we're going to see Abraham standing before the judge of the universe almost like a defendant in court and he's going to take up the case and and, and plead before this judge the case of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And see, when you go back to Genesis 17, verse 1, where where God says to Abraham, you're going to walk before me and you're going to be blameless. And and you're left wondering, well, what does it mean to walk before God? What does it mean to be blameless? It's, It's everything that we read about in Genesis 18. It's a 99 year old man running around and a 90 year old woman baking bread. It's It's going before the judge of the universe and being priests and advocates on behalf of lost people, the least of these. Crossroads, we just got our marching orders right here. This is our mission. I don't know how many thought we'd come to Genesis to get our marching orders, but here they are. This is why the prophet Isaiah says, listen, to you who pursue righteousness, to you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you've been cut and the quarry from which you've been hewn. Look to Sarah who gave you birth and to Abraham who's your father. We're their kids. And uh, we are to, like Abraham, reflect our father in heaven. So in our text, uh, here they are, they're eating. And here's the Lord, right there. As a, just, a, just a dude, just sitting around Abraham's table, eating. And then in the course of this meal, verse 9, the Lord asks Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? At this moment, honestly, I see, I see Abraham almost fainting <laughs> to the ground. Like, how do you know my wife's name? How do you know that I even have a wife, that she is my wife? Because even this, up until a few days ago, her, her name was Sarai, and they say, where's Sarah? And now for Abraham, these strangers are, are no longer strangers, and with his chest probably pounding, he somehow gets out the words, uh, she's, she's in the tent. And I think now we know why the visitors are here because up until this time, the Lord's dealings have primarily been with Abraham. But I love this because now the Lord is here to personally meet with Sarah to establish Sarah in his covenant. That's why in verse 10, the Lord says, one year from now, Sarah will have a son. And Sarah's on the other side of that tent flap, uh, but she's, she's listening to everything that's going on and, and everything that's being said. And when she hears this, in verse 12, it says that she laughs, but not out loud. The laughter was within her. And then thinking to herself, not saying this out loud, she says, wow, I'm a worn out woman. My Lord, my husband is old. Are you kidding me? Shall I have this pleasure? 
Now, I think in this one statement, we learn a lot about Sarah and where she is right now. I think she's a woman who is given up all hope. And I don't know if it's, if it's hope in God or if it's hope in herself and her life that she matters, that her life matters. Uh, but, but the laughter that comes out of her is this kind of laughter. And I think we all know that there are two kinds of laughter. There's that laughter of joy. There's also that cynical, bitter, sarcastic laughter, that, that laughter that comes from a place of hopelessness. And those words that she speaks to herself, I'm worn out, literally read, I am a worn out garment. In other words, I'm not just old, but I'm, I'm, I'm old and useless. And, and then I think about when we were first introduced to Sarah in Genesis 11, the only thing that the text tells us about Sarah is that she's barren. And then in Genesis 12, in that state of barrenness, uh, the call of God comes to her uh, to walk, to leave life as you know it, because I'm going to bless you, O barren woman. I'm going to make your descendants as great as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And Hebrews 11 does commentary on Sarah as well. It tells us that Sarah trusted God, that, that, that she was given into this hope, this hope of a promised son. And so Sarah walks and Months go by of hoping, hoping, but no son. Years go by, still no son. Decades, no son. In my opinion, something at some point in time broke inside of her. You can hear it in these self-loathing words when she says, I'm worn, I'm useless, like life has just sort of passed me by. And I don't know if any of us have ever experienced this before, know this kind of feeling. And I don't think it's that she has even stopped believing in God. I, I think she stopped believing in herself or that God has stopped believing in her, which is why uh, earlier in our story, she proposes to Abraham, just have uh, children through my servant Hagar. It's like she's saying to Abraham in that moment, it's like, I know God's promises aren't broken. I still believe the promises of God. What's broken in this whole equation is me. I'm the one. Have you been there? So when Sarah then also says, again to herself, she says, shall I have this pleasure? And you need to know, it, it, it's not the pleasure of, of, of having a child. It, the word here in the Hebrew is, is, is the word, very clear, for sexual pleasure. So the Lord says, Sarah, you're going you're gonna to give birth. One year from now, you're going to have a child. The first thing that comes to Sarah's mind when she hears that is like, Abraham and I aren't even having sex anymore. Which I think then you can also conclude that there's a lot going on between Abraham and Sarah. Is he don't think that those decisions that they made years ago to bring Hagar into their marriage aren't without a consequence. I mean, even though this was the custom of their day, there's still another woman in the relationship, a younger woman, a fruitful woman, a useful woman. Abraham and Sarah probably haven't had sex in a long time. 
which is probably a clear indication that Abraham and Sarah themselves are alienated from each other. Which is why, and I know this might sound a bit outrageous, but God here is essentially exhorting Sarah, I want you to have sex with your husband by faith. Because we know God could say, you know, I can give you a child without sex. He's done that one before. But he doesn't. Sarah, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to have sex with your husband by faith. Trust me. And see, I, I, I think, you know, this is so how, how God is. Um, when, whenever we ask God for something, uh, it could be anything. It could be a big thing. It could be a small thing. It could be a job that we've always wanted. It could be some form of an upgrade in our life or something that we think that we need. Anything that we ask God for, God never gives us things without first changing us. And so here God gives Sarah the hope that one year from now, uh, you're going to have child, but you and Abraham are going to have to move from this place of alienation. You're going to have to get together again. Because at the end of the day, God is not just the sugar daddy in the sky that just wants to give us what we want. God wants to change us. He wants to transform us. He wants to give to Sarah, not just this miracle child. He wants to resurrect their marriage. And this is God. This is how he works. And obviously, Sarah obeyed. I love the Lord's response to Sarah's laughter. I love absolutely every word of it. But, but, but the part of it that I love the most is verse 14, when God says to Sarah's laughter, is anything too difficult for me? Now, this word difficult in the Hebrew is actually the word wonderful, which I like even more. God's saying, is anything too wonderful for me? And this word in the Hebrew is a word that the psalmist uses over and over to describe God. It's, it's also the word that's used in Exodus to describe the plagues, the, the signs and the wonders. And I think the reason why I love this word wonder so much is because wonder is the thing that's so missing today. Do you remember when you were a kid? Do you remember when our, our, our little minds were consumed with wonder, whether it was simple story or fairy, fairy tale or the wonder of, of seeing a fire truck or a fireman or a policeman. Uh, I just remember my dad being a coach, baseball coach meant we always had the baseball stuff in the trunk of his car. And sometimes I would go and get into that stuff. And the stuff that was most mesmerizing was the catcher's equipment, especially that catcher's mask. As a kid, I was just blown away, mesmerized by that catcher's mask just to put that thing on my face. But you know, then we grow up and we lose this sense of wonder. And why is it? Well, a big part of it is because, whether you know this or not right now, we live in the most wonder-killing culture of all time. 
the mystery, the enchantment of life, the awe-inspiring realities that are so beyond our minds. Because we need to figure everything out, even things like God and the supernatural are just explained away with these naturalistic answers. And we're left living in this miracleless, godless, wonderless world where this unfathomable universe is reduced to being the evolutionary product of time plus matter plus chance. Where humanity is nothing more than a developed germ in a vast cosmic machine. Where something as wonderfully complex as love itself is nothing more than a chemical in your brain. Where a child in a mother's womb is just a mass of tissue where God himself is nothing more than a projection or invention of the human psyche. And we call this knowledge. I mean, just think about it. So much of our academy today teaches a kid that there's nothing meaningful beyond the sun. There's nothing meaning, meaningful below the sun. There's nothing meaningful to one's origin. There's nothing meaningful to one's destiny. It's all this nothingness, and yet somehow our lives in the midst of that are to be meaningful. Don't be so surprised to see a generation that becomes bored, depressed, and despairing, doing extreme things in desperate pursuit of wonder. Because when wonder ceases, boredom and emptiness set in. And that's our Western world. Remember the first time I took my oldest son, who was then four, to the Chicago Zoo. <laughs> I can still see it. This, this little kid, literally, going from exhibit to exhibit, and he was running. Couldn't wait to see the next animal, the next, and he just, and just the, 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 the joy. It's like in that moment I became a little kid again. And see, when we get older, it, it, it takes more and more to fill our hearts with wonder, and, and only God is, is big enough to do that. God is anything too wonderful for me, he says to Sarah. In fact, I think the biggest difference between a Christian and a secular person is the sense of wonder. A, a, a Christian is, is still someone who's, who's still overwhelmed with this sense of wonder. The wonder of God causes my heart to say, I want to know you. It's the wonder of his of his creation that causes me to say, when I look at your heavens, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, like, who am I? What am I? Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's the wonder of the gospel story that this awesome almighty God would leave behind all his glory and he'd just show up like he does in our story as some dude, some stranger. To me, it's also the biggest difference between a Christian and a religious person because there's a big difference between those two things. It's a sense of wonder. If you ask a religious person, are you a Christian? They say something like, of course, look at me. But you ask a genuine Christian, are you a Christian? And the response is something like, yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> me of all people, what a joke. <laughs> 
And they're just, they're, they're, they're overwhelmed with, with the goodness and the grace of God. It's why they can't talk about God without getting tears in their eyes. They can't sing to him without weeping. And this is the work that God performs on Sarah's heart. He transforms Sarah's cynical laughter of hopelessness and he puts wonder into it. How does he do it? Let me just fast forward to chapter 21. And the Lord is gracious to Sarah. Oh, I love those words. As he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised, Sarah became pregnant, bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when the son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And listen to these words. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. I love this. Abraham names him Isaac, Yitzhak in Hebrew, Yitzhak means laughter. And this is why she says, God has brought me Yitzhak, laughter. And come on, just imagine every time she's nursing, her and Abraham are probably just cracking up. Can you believe this? Every time someone sees her nurse, what? This 90-year-old woman, every time they look at this miracle child, I bet Abraham and Sarah just burst out laughing. And this is a different kind of laughter, isn't it? It's different than that bitter, bitter, cynical, sarcastic laughter of hopelessness. It's the laughter of wonder, of hope, of joy. And it's all because of what we read in verse 1 of chapter 21, how this all begins. The Lord was gracious to Sarah. The grace of God came into Sarah's life. And this grace, it overcame the impossibility of her situation. She's giving something so outside the bounds of what's normal and natural. And now she laughs with that sense of wonder and joy. Do you know this kind of laughter today? The laughter of hope, the laughter of joy, uh, that comes from a real experience of God and his grace in your life? Or are you stuck now in an impossible human situation where you've lost hope God, in God and the God of the impossible? And I guess this is where we ask the question, like how, how, do, how do we get God to do the impossible things in our life, those things that he's promised us but yet aren't realized well, what does this text say? Because I think there's a lot here. Does the text teach us that we need to become these super spiritual saintly people like Sarah? Think about how the Lord comes to her. I don't know if the Lord's ever showed up at your house the way the Lord shows up at her tent, but she gets this one chance and she pretty much just laughs in the Lord's face. See, and this is what this text is teaching us. It's teaching us that this is not about Sarah or the goodness that she offers God, just like it's not about us. It's not about us 
kind of gaining some spiritual technique or, or psychotherapy that, that we can apply to our life, the one who changes Sarah's laughter is God and his grace. And the grace of God is that promised son who's now born into her life and it changes her. And the grace of this promised son is what the whole Bible's about. This little story we're reading today points us to the ultimate story, to the ultimate promised son who will come to the world as the prophet says, for to us a child is born and to us a son will be given. And then we come to our New Testament and when this promised son is finally born, when he's finally given to the world, Luke's gospel tells us that an angel again shows up to a woman promising this woman a son, except this time the promised son will come through something even more impossible than barrenness. It will come through a virgin without a husband. And that woman, Mary, who's like Sarah, responds in the same way that Sarah says and says, how can this be? And the angel says right back to Mary, just like she said to Sarah, nothing is impossible with God. It's almost an identical story. And the reason Luke wants to show us this is because he wants us to see that Jesus is is the true Isaac. He is the one who came to bring the laughter of God, the hope of God, the wonder of God, the grace of God. And as Isaiah says, his name shall be called what? Wonderful. And so today, if you want the laughter of God, the hope of God, the wonder of God, the grace of God, if you want that to just come flowering, uh, showering into your life, we just need to look at Sarah because what does Sarah offer God? Nothing but her barrenness. And Sarah's barrenness is so much more than just her infertility. It's, it's physical, it's spiritual, it's relational barrenness. It's being worn out, useless. And do you know right now that all of us, apart from the wonder of God's grace, we're all barren, every one of us. But that Sarah's story is the biblical story that through a barren woman, God sends the ultimate Isaac to the world to deal with our barrenness and our emptiness. And I, I, I love to think of, of what this ultimate Isaac had to give up in coming to the world. John's gospel says that he left his father's house. In other words, he left eternal laughter with his father. He became a man of sorrows. He wept on the cross. It says he cried out, he screamed. Why? So we could have Yitzhak, the laughter of God. As the ultimate Isaac, Jesus took upon himself God's holy justice so that you and I could have God's grace and mercy. And if you and I want to have the laughter of wonder and joy and hope, we just need to come to God as Sarah comes to him. Barren. Nothing in these hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Crossroads.
stay small, stay desperate, stay needy. With this God, all you need is need. It's all we give to him. And God, that's what we give to you today. Nothing more than that, but we give you all of it. And God, we have brought so much barrenness into this room. And God, I pray you would shower us with your grace that you would bring Yitzhak laughter through your grace, not because we're so good, but because you, Jesus, you are so good. And nothing in these hands we bring, but simply to you, Jesus, we cling. Amen.